Hey, Holons. Welcome back to another week here on the Brilliant Perth Podcast. I'm Dylan Lamb, your host. I hope you all enjoyed the Easter and the Anzac Day break. This week on the show, we've got Gareth Durant. Gareth is a designer and facilitator at DSIL Global, which stands for Designing Social Innovation and Leadership. DSIL are a company that are based in Bangkok, Thailand, and I first met Gareth in a social impact workshop a few weeks ago, and the first thing he did was he got us all in the workshop to write down on a piece of paper what was holding us back from being present, and then he instructed us to scrunch up the piece of paper and throw it at him, which I thought was really cool, and I had a chat with Gareth after the event, and yeah, now here I am getting him on the show. So Gareth uses uh, these liberating structures methods and uh, liberating structures are open source tools, which I'll share in the links below, but they're really simple, easy to follow and incredibly effective in unleashing a culture of innovation. I've been playing around with some of the LS methods. Uh, There's a phone app for them too. Uh, They're really good fun. Anyway, let's get to the chat. Gareth, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I usually start my episodes with a question. So totally put you on the spot here, but um, as you're a pretty epic sort of facilitator, I'm sure you've got some really great experiences, but also some pretty shocking ones as well. So I thought I might ask you, what's your worst experience like facilitating or hosting, like where something just went went tits up? Yeah, uh, a ton of them, lots of them. Uh, one that comes to mind was, uh, I was working for a a US NGO that essentially trains activists in Asia in order to, um, you know, fulfill, uh, their kind of, um, goals in terms of social change. Um, usually I, I kind of talk about my work saying that I make badass activists more badass and that was kind of my job. (laughs) And we had invited a bunch of really radical, cool Chinese activists to take part in something called an action assembly, which is essentially, if you've been through some training before, you have a broader understanding of what advocacy is. So you've done some of your own advocacy before. You you come together um, overseas. Uh, You learn from other regional players, uh, but you also learn from other people in your country. So the disability activists are talking to the LGBT activists who are talking um, to the, like the health and um, HIV uh, kind of a positive space uh, activists and they're all coming together to share ideas and, and whatnot. And I built up this this whole, you know, three-day, four-day summit um, around some pretty progressive facilitation and no one was having any of it. Um, so essentially none of, none of them trusted each other um, and that was a big, big issue because I kind of assumed because they had done some training with us previously and we're working on some pretty interesting intersections between their activism. They would be uh, willing to kind of share stories and their plans. But, you know, even the very beginning when I was like, what brings you here? What work are you doing? Like the response was, I'd rather not discuss it. And then I was like, oh, that's kind of the point of this uh, summit. Um, and even with some more progressive facilitation, um, they weren't willing to experiment and try. They wanted a blow-by-blow exactly what would happen in the activity. They wanted me essentially to then model that activity and then the group would then decide whether or not they would participate or not. Um, 
So yeah, it was a train wreck, a complete uh, train wreck, because there was just uh, a real strong um, uh, fear that what was said in that room would be reported back to the Public Security Bureau. Um, it was a really contentious time in China that were bringing in um, a new foreign NGO law that sought to essentially stifle any local activism. Um, they were already kind of being flagged by the police because they were traveling anyway and they were asked to report back. Um, so there was a lot of contextual and trust stuff that any of that progressive stuff was just not going to fly. Um, so yeah, complete train wreck. That's a good story. So just for the listeners out there, so I first met Gareth and it was actually in a quite a, uh, what's the word to me, a quite a brilliant, uh, brilliantly facilitated session, but. My first um, experience with Gareth was at a social impact workshop that you ran about six weeks ago and um, we rocked up and I got given a piece of paper and, and we all wrote down, you know, one thing that was holding us back and then you told us to scrunch it up and throw it at you. Yeah. And that was really cool. And that was kind of um, uh, learning this methodology, which I'd like to talk with you about a bit later of liberating structures. Yeah. Uh, but to me, it was kind of a bit of a breath, breath of fresh air and seeing like your facilitation style and... Uh, just this something that I hadn't really seen before in kind of my journey of getting into sort of design and facilitation. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about the work you're doing uh, with DSIL. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the work involves getting people together and facilitating something. Um, so essentially, uh, we're a design firm. Uh, we work with corporations, organizations, uh, governments uh, to design either uh, a learning journey Um, a new service, a new policy. Um, It's quite a broad scope. Uh, My interactions with DSIL uh, started in uh, Bangkok. So we were all based in Bangkok and um, I had engaged them to help me redesign this Chinese uh, uh, human rights um, project or program that I was working on. And that was my first time to really see how design thinking could be used in a really interesting space where the stakes were high and it was important to trial and test things because you if you don't get it right people get arrested right um and so ever since that with dsil i've been doing everything from uh designing a water and land uh, energy conference in the mekong uh, we're working with um uae so based in dubai looking at how their government can be more innovative uh, working on bigger projects but i also do smaller stuff like working with uh, the Department of Health in Queensland, making sure their meetings suck less, and that was the scope. Um, so I'm always using facilitation in order to kind of achieve the goals of redesigning or solving problems with with a, a really wide range of people. Yeah, cool. And DSIL stands for Designing Social Innovation and Leadership. Yeah. Right? Really cool. Tell us where this, because I actually used it in a session the other day, like this liberating structures methodology and you've got an app and it's sort yeah. of a, a great sort of open source resource. Yeah. Is that, what's the connection there to DSIL? And, um, so uh, Katie, who uh, is one of the founders of DSIL, is also on the global board for liberating structures and liberating structures were um, developed um, uh, probably, I would say 10 years ago um, uh, by two individuals um, Keith and the other name escapes me. Um, but what's cool about it is uh, their microstructures. So instead of looking at activities as a broader kind of way of stringing through a workshop or an experience with people, we talk about specific principles that we need to change 
um, in order to make sure these micro interactions with people in a space uh, are more meaningful. So if you have a traditional um, uh, lesson or kind of a workshop where you're trying to impart knowledge, the traditional structure is kind of, you have a PowerPoint, one person speaks, 20 people listen. The aim of these liberating structures is to say, how might we get all 20 people generating ideas and um, coming up with their own um, kind of reflections or uh, whatever it is, but unleashing all the potential in the room instead of having a one to 20 type uh, traditional method. Um, so they seek to change these little micro interactions and then build up from there um, really different ways of interacting in a crowd. Uh, so they're all open source. Um, everyone is invited to trial and play with them. I mean, often it's very similar to a lot of things that in this space in terms of um, some of the innovation uh, activities and methodologies people use, but they often liken it to jazz, which is an analogy that everyone uses, but everyone shows up, everyone plays, and it creates something larger than uh, that individual, but it's also meant to be riffed and played with and um, different each time. Um, they're, they're game changers for me in the way that I've facilitated, but for me, what is really cool or, or like radical about it is, you know, the concept of a panel discussion is no longer like ethically okay for me. So, so I was, I'll give you an example. I was, I was invited to help a group of lawyers um, construct a women in the law conference. Um, so they were looking at how do we get this topic on the table? How do we engage people and whatnot? And their pitch was, you know, how do we make a panel discussion engaging? And I, and I said, so you're going to invite hundreds of intelligent, dynamic, powerful female lawyers, tell them all to shut up and listen to five people. And that's like your radical, that's how you're going to change this conversation and things like that. And I was like, well, how about we just start with them, their experience of being a woman in the law and then build out from there. Um, so yeah, now that I've started using them, I'm just really conscious and hyper aware of being in a workshop setting or a you know, academic setting where one person is speaking and 10 people are listening. And I say, that's like a really appalling use of all of our time. And there are ways that we can actually do much better. So I've really enjoyed pushing back on even keynote speech. Like I, that is thousands of people in a room and one person speaking. And there's, there's a place for personal narrative, but I think we need to continually question you know, who has power, who has voice in each of the rooms that we're in. Mm. Very cool. Let's talk a bit about your own journey to sort of DSIL. And to me, like I was really blown away. I think you're a really cool facilitator and I'd love to talk more about kind of bringing your own personality to facilitating. Yeah. Um, and I think the listeners will really find value there. What's Let's talk a bit about your journey to becoming a facilitator. How did you go about it? How are you continuously improving even now um, mm -hmm. through the work you're doing? So all of my early facilitation was done in a sexual health space. So essentially uh, as like a younger person engaged in uh, HIV prevention and things like that, I would go to high schools and do workshops with young people. Um, generally young people don't want to learn sex ed from their footy coach and they don't really want to engage with parents all the time. Um, so you would bring in peers, people who are a few years older than you to kind of discuss uh, STIs and healthy relationships and stuff like that. So early, even from an early age, um, I was kind of dealing with some pretty intense topics that involved a lot of, you know, stigma and issues. And I kind of did a lot of that work. Um, you know, I used to work in sex on premises venues. So these are bathhouses and areas where people go to, to hook up and have sex. And I would do essentially like a design 
facilitation with people talking about their risk and pleasure matrix and working out how I could move them from, wow. you know, low, low pleasure, high risk to uh, low risk, high pleasure activities. So like those kind of things are facilitation meets design. And I was doing that years and years ago in the middle of a, you know, sex on premises venue. Um, so after cutting my teeth, I guess, um, in the sexual health space, I started working um, in uh, family planning. So I used to um, I used to work in an abortion clinic in East St Kilda, and most of my work in that space was um, doing upskilling and training within the organisation around stigma and um, kind of values. So as a medical professional, you may bring your whole self to work, and you have values and ideas about you know right and wrong and what have you, but you also have professional responsibilities. So a lot of the training I was doing in that space and the facilitation was a thing called uh, values clarification workshops. So talking about people's values and what they bring to work and it was specific to um, abortion and family planning. And over time, I started working in other areas, but um, I guess when it comes to style and it comes to my background, I still bring a lot of that um, sexual health background uh, to the work I do, even if it's something completely unrelated. Um, so I start most of my facilitation with um, voice, choice, safety, and fun. And those are my kind of uh, my mantras. And it's equally applicable if you're running an HIV program or something as it is if you're doing a workshop on organizational management or whatever it is. Um, everyone should have a voice. Everyone should have a choice of how much or how little they want to participate. Um, everyone should feel safe in this space and, and people should have fun. And if I'm not living any of those values, I ask the community to hold me accountable um, and it's just a way of being really authentic, acknowledging kind of the root of all my facilitation and work came from this HIV space, you know, and working in really interesting, really intense topics. Um, and then carrying that through and just owning that when I facilitate something that's completely unrelated to, to sex or, or, or abortion. Really cool. Mm. So tell us a bit where you're at now in terms of what your maybe some of the learning that you've set aside for this year with your own mm -hmm. journey. I know you're moving to Bulgaria soon. Yeah. Uh, tell us a bit, bit more about that. Um, I think with the work that I'm doing at the moment, so each year we run a leadership course. Um, and um, on top of that, we have projects that we work with with people. And a lot of the stuff is not designing for, it's designing with, and then obviously teaching forward design um, as well as facilitation techniques so they can kind of run uh, designed by so they, they they do it themselves so in all of that work there's an expectation that you know if you can't master individual personal innovation you're not going to master any other kind so there's an expectation on myself and then other people who are involved in DSIL to actually seek out new um, professional development opportunities and one thing in my facilitation that I'm not great at is more of the embodiment stuff so I really always like when you do kind of 4d mapping where you all kind of interact where you do human sculptures where you use your bodies and interact with people in the room to debrief about things i think there's something really cool that happens when you take an idea to 2d then to 3d and then embody it um uh so i'm pushing myself this year to go to an embodiment uh five day uh leadership program um it has a lot more also to do with voice projection singing music and embodiment all which is kryptonite to me and i have sweaty palms just thinking about it um but i think that's that's kind of my job because often the work that i'm doing is really pushing people to take you know radical responsibility for who they are in the system and what they're doing about it um and you know a lot of this kind of deeply listening and honestly sharing stuff comes from 
um, you need to be really self-aware about what, what you're doing. And if I'm not working on that, it's quite hypocritical. And kind of what I was saying too before in terms of authenticity, if you're a facilitator, you have to be really, well, I believe you have to be really authentic and really transparent about that. Um, so this is one thing that I'm doing. Um, there are other things. Um, uh, actually, uh, my colleague is going to a Theory U um, workshop in the US as well. Um, so yeah, we're just trying to deep dive into other areas and then fold that back into our practice and, and what we do. Wicked. Let's talk a little bit about your connection to Perth. Mm. Um, I always like to sort of, as we get towards the end of the show, I always like to ask people what their take on um, Perth becoming a brilliant city mm-hmm. and what sort of uh, their interpretation of that is and, and what, what maybe would like um, needs to happen in Perth to, to sort of reach that area of brilliance. But are you from Perth? Um, I know you've sort of, you've had this awesome global sort of career moving around on the East Coast and mm-hmm. that to go um, over to Europe. Yeah, um, I guess I actually have a like a love hate relationship with Perth, and of late it's turned more to love. Um, but if you asked me five years ago or even eighteen months ago, it probably was skewed on the the hate side. Um, I uh, so my parents are both from East Coast. They moved to WA um, early on, so I spent time in Exmouth and also actually near Kalgoorlie, cool. um, a place called Linster. Um, but, uh, I basically, I left home or well, left home. I went to boarding school when I was 11. So parents kept on moving around and doing stuff. So uh, my sister and I went to boarding school and all my high school, so 11 onwards and including high school happened in Perth. Um, so that's where kind of my home is and, you know, social network is. But as soon as high school finished, I moved to Taiwan and I went, I was in Taiwan and China for essentially six years all up. And then I didn't really come back to Perth. Um, till much later, um, uh, 18 months ago, well, not even 18 months ago, it's almost seven months ago. Um, I made a decision to come back and see what I could, uh, do here, both like locally, but also could Perth be a base for me and hanging out with cool people that I know are doing cool things. And it's really surprised me. I'm really enjoying, I guess, the time that I've got here. Cool. There's a connection through, and this is something we've sort of spoken about before we sort of came to catch up here on the show, mm-hmm. to the circular economy and DSIL. Mm-hmm. I believe one of your colleagues is doing some work in Bangkok. Mm-hmm. Could you mm-hmm. share with us a bit about that? I wish I could speak more specifically to the work that uh, she's doing. Um, I know that, um, so after founding the company and uh, working on it and as an advisor now, um, she's still uh, very much related to it. Um but I tell you what's cool about the work that she's doing from my perspective. Um, she's currently based in the UN, so UNDP. She's head of exploration, which is this huge kind of um, 60 country project where they're looking to hire local innovators um, in 60 of these countries to kind of continue to support and um, build a entrepreneurship ecosystem in order to deal with some of the sustainable development goals. Often when you're in a regional position like that in Bangkok, you're completely unrelated to what's going on in and around you. Yeah. Whereas Courtney, on top of that work, has decided to bring together cir- circular economy type people. And I think a lot of that stems from her relationships with an organization and a community called the Zero Bart Shop. Have you ever? No. It's really cool. So essentially, uh, many years ago, the founders got together and started working with a community um, in kind of uh, outer Bangkok called the Zero Bart uh, community or zero, and they run this thing called the Zero Bart Shop. 
they were a community of uh, people who didn't have any land. So they were living out of under bridges and stuff like that in a shanty town. The government um, got together to gift them a section of land um, in order to allow them to, um, uh, to kind of uh, take root and start to build a, a community of their own. The thing is they gave them the worst possible land in, 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 the, in the area and it was next to a, an old dump, like an old rubbish dump. Um, but they settled there anyway and, you know, they're entrepreneurial and, and tenacious and so they started to collect the rubbish from the tip and um, uh, start to um, sort it. Um, and so they developed the Zero Bart Shop that essentially if you came in with a kilo or two kilos or whatever of copper wire or whatever it was, um, plastic bottles, um, you would use that as currency to then buy oil and rice and things like that. And so they really changed the, the whole economy of what they're doing. And now they've started to do, you know, other things within the community that show far more, you know, sustainable living and things like that. And they're actually now teaching, you know, like uh, the municipalities and like, you know, uh, Bangkok uh, suburbs, how to like change your communities. So the cool thing is that she's very rooted in what's going on in Bangkok, even as an expat, um, but also really connected to some of the hubs and some of the cool stuff that's going on. So, yeah, I think you should have her on the podcast and she can talk specifically to what she's trying to achieve in that. But I think the the through thread for me is that she does um, connect with some really amazing people locally and then bring them up as well as bring some of those regional ideas and maybe some of that clout uh, back down to help um, other things. So yeah, she's, she's doing well. Yeah. Awesome. I look forward to connecting with her and, and yeah, definitely would love to get her on the show. Let's talk a little bit about social impact. Cause mm-hmm. that's, there's quite a, a, a great, there's a great community in Perth around sort of social impact. I understand you did the grand cert of social impact. Doing, doing. Yeah, yeah, I've got one more to go. Yeah, cool. Tell us a bit about your experience that, like I'm pretty keen to just have an open chat about what you think about social impact. Yeah. Um, where, where some of the work is, is great. Maybe where there's also some things that are, um, I don't know, like I've got, I'm interested in terms of, I've spoken about a bit on the show around almost like kind of popping the bubble a little bit uh-huh. of social impact, but yeah. um, it's a great, yeah, it's, it's just kind of this emerging field of practice. Yeah. Um, but people are, um, I've seen it even through like the, what UWA is doing um, in terms of people are using social impact as a great sort of tool to pivot their career mm-hmm. and take, say, skills in accounting or law or engineering to go and work more in sort of social design and, and looking at problems differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm still uh, working out what my take is on it. Um, so in September, I did my first course and I was like really cynical and angry and frustrated and quite disruptive, um, like unnecessarily so. Um, so um, one of, at the end of the uh, first unit, um, we were asked to kind of share our reflections about like how we felt about the unit and kind of what we think about social impact uh, is like in Perth. And the only feedback I had, and it was, you know, unnecessarily... Um, rude but I said like gee you know white women really care about education because all I heard for three four days was about you know school lunches or you know like you know what Nedlands Primary is doing and it made me want to rip my non-existent hair out because you know it was so privileged it was so white it was so you know like um you know keep cups are going to save the world we just need more handicrafts like all of that that i was just like we we're not going to solve the problems that you're talking about um you know i was quite disruptive when when i first learned about the alliance for um homelessness i was like it's so great that you're patting yourselves on the back now 
um, for collaborating. For, for the last 20 years, you haven't been collaborating. And can we all acknowledge the hurt that, that that happens when you don't collaborate? Like, I'm not there for the party afterwards. I really want you to stop and think about why you weren't collaborating previously. Now that it's a buzzword, now that it's a this, like, there's some healing that needs to happen. Um, you know, so that it was just like me being really angry, uh, which is kind of my MO a lot of the time. Um, but after I've done, you know, spent more time with the people who are actually involved here, I'm getting a real sense of um, underneath maybe a superficial level when you first interact in this space, there's a lot of deep, deep learning and deep um, uh, work that has a lot of integrity. Um, and so I'm getting to the point where I'm, I'm kind of being able to, you know, sort it out and work out, all right, well, what is something that I think is um, theatre, like a lot of innovation theatre, like you have, a bu- you have a post-it note and, you know, one person with lived experience and suddenly you're going to solve this issue and then what's kind of like a deeper engagement and what has happened behind the scenes that I don't know about because I haven't been around and that kind of stuff so um I think I will continue to be a a voice of um you know a a questioning voice within the space um you know I, I have I have you know everyone talks about collaboration yet UWA has kind of caught like made a bit of a territory around social impact so like how are they reaching out to regional TAFE centres or other universities or other things and not trying to kind of um, hold social impact for themselves? You know, like all of those questions I think need to continue to be asked. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've actually really enjoyed the journey of, you know, complete cynic to starting to see a lot of the cool stuff that's actually going around and I've mellowed a little bit on it. Um, but yeah, I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to keep on being involved because I think there are some cool people, um, involved there and they challenge, you know, they, they meet that challenge with, well, actually, do you know about this? And do you know how long that took? And, you know, we're really working in this space and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying that, that kind of, uh, discussion that's happening in the space. Yeah, cool. Well, that's, they're, they're really interesting insights. Thanks for sharing that. Let's talk a little bit about open sourcing. Mm-hmm particularly in the context of facilitating. So like liberating structures, great resource. You got like, it's been open source. Yeah. Uh, what's your opinion on, um, in terms of like being able to drive impact at scale, say globally in terms of the tools that we're using as innovators or designers or facilitators? Mm-hmm. I think, um, it's always hard for me to engage, um, kind of in a way that keeps, uh, something to myself so you know I I've got so much more out of radical transparency and kind of openness than I ever had from guarding things um, and so when I have um, something a tool or whatever that's new and exciting I'll use it and I'll share it you know almost simultaneously um, I don't understand um, I guess personal ownership of facilitation and tools and techniques because Um, I think you need to courageously steal from people around you. Like that's the point. Um, And people will always have their different spin on things. People will always bring themselves to it and do it differently. And that's also okay. Um, I think some of that's been prompted by um, just, I have like a low threshold for secrets in general and stigma. My work in sexual health and stuff like that is basically people will not talk about this issue. So it festers. So it's all of that kind of stuff that, kind of informs that but my work with DSIL has also helped me frame things in the sense that you can you can you know um, reference things you can tell us where they came from and then you can use them as as much as you want and there's there's a basic respect there that that I think moves people forward um, you know you're only one person as well and you know you're not going to get this um, kind of 
uh, to scale impact if you're holding it all you know to yourself and also like the more people that play with those the more that they improve them and then you learn from that process as well like for me it's just a, a no-brainer like it really is not a um i just would not thrive in a place that it was specifically secretive or i mean i, I even push back a lot because people are like so what's your product like do you do you run a series of this or do you want run this workshop or do that and i was like well no i just design with whatever the needs happen and then you can do that if you want to do that like i'm not going to hold that i'm not going to own that um and i think some people are you know so used to engaging from a competitive kind of territorial space um that you know it's hard to compute sometimes mm. very cool let's talk let's talk a little bit about this kind of the, one of the themes of the podcast is perth becoming a brilliant city mm. and it's sort of it was really inspired by talking to some people in the social impact communities people in within Encore. Um, a guy I'm working with around circular economy, but kind of leveling up, you know, this and off the notion of, of smart cities and all this sort of, mm -hmm. we've lost a plot a bit in terms of technology and our relationship with it. What's your take on Perth becoming a brilliant city? What's going to make it brilliant? Uh, what's already like, we, we've talked a bit about some of the brilliant things that are happening here and, and your draw to come back here and, and work, but still have a bit of a tether to Perth. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um... So I have this thing about cities in general. Um, uh, so I did uh, my undergraduate in Taiwan, and as I said, like spent spent more years of my life, uh, my young adult life, uh, speaking Chinese than I did English in terms of uh, my undergraduate and other things. And one of the things that strikes me, and, and obviously in this kind of cross cultural space, a lot of the time we talk about it, that um, say you say the word New York, and, it, and there's a specific you know, thing that happens in your brain and that fires and, and you've got an idea of what it is. And if you say the word New York, it's a Chinese uh, word for New York, it fires something else and something else is created. Um, and so for me, cities are really interesting because when you say Perth and you think about Perth, it's in a specific, you know, framework. If you are a working holiday visa and you're French and your experience of Perth is, is in and around, um, temporary work and the suburbs that you've lived in and it's different from where you're from and that kind of stuff it's going to be a really different experience if you've always been in a wheelchair your experience of Perth is going to be a very different landscape and idea than other things and I think you know why I think cities are cool is that everyone's experience of them is really different based on their own perspective and you know, the languages they speak and whatever a brilliant city for me would be able to celebrate and show all of that and that you know um that if you've, you're born and bred Frio and you know Frio and your like love of this um, town and how it's changed and whatever could also be felt and experienced by someone else that, you know, didn't have that background. Or, um, you know, uh, if, you, if you were able to have people hold different perspectives, contain multitudes, all of that kind of stuff about the city they live in and share those experiences in a way, I don't know how that, that is going to happen, that would be a brilliant city to me. Because, you know, I think about something like Singapore, right? And you've got, like, crazy rich Asian in Singapore, which is, like, a, a an interesting lens. But you've also got Bangladeshi, you know, uh, construction worker Singapore. You've also got domestic made um, from Philippines Singapore. And they all live in Singapore, but it's a different Singapore. A brilliant Singapore would be able to harness, celebrate, show, bring to light issues of all those multiple uh, perspectives all at once. 
Um, I have no idea how you would do that. Uh, but it's certainly something that I've, I've, I've always found really interesting because people's experiences of the exact same place are completely different. I really like that. Mm. Brilliant. Gareth Durant, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. If you find this podcast valuable, then please subscribe and leave me a review on your podcasting platform of choice. If you'd like to recommend a future topic or a brilliant guest, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me via our website at holonic.com.au or via my personal LinkedIn page. That's it, Holons. Have a brilliant week and we'll see you next week.